Good morning and welcome to our fourth adult Bible class in this series called The Rise and Falls of Joseph. We're talking about how at different stages of Joseph's life, he was a dreamer, a prisoner, and a ruler. In the past three uh, classes on the life of Joseph, we talked about how Joseph experiences different falls in his life, falls from grace or falls from position and authority. And that happens not because he's sinful or wicked or does something evil. It's because he often does something that's naive and, and short-sighted. He doesn't really see the consequences that may occur because of his naive decisions. Then we talked about uh, two stories that actually are actually told back-to-back, -back, a story of Judah and his inappropriate relationship with his daughter-in-law Tamar and Joseph's um, appropriate response to Potiphar's wife's temptations and her seduction and how these two men are contrasted with each other. Judah makes the wrong calls. Uh, he makes the selfish decisions and Joseph makes the right calls, but Joseph suffers. He is falsely accused of abusing Potiphar's wife and so he's put into prison. He faces undeserved suffering while his brothers are sinning and not at least immediately or obviously showing any kinds of suffering for their behavior. Once Joseph is put into prison and he kind of wallows there for a while, he meets two officials who have dreams about the future. Joseph interprets those dreams, uh, which is an act of great kindness for, for at least one of them, and they uh, find out that the, that the Pharaoh is actually going to vindicate the cupbearer and he's going to execute the chief baker. Now, this is just a theory. This is something that scholars propose, and I shared a little bit about it last week, and I think it actually makes a lot of sense. The scholar's theory is that uh, these two officials are very high up in the Egyptian government, and one of them tried to assassinate or planned a coup against the Pharaoh, and he did that by trying to poison his food. Now, if that's true, then it makes sense that Pharaoh wasn't really sure which one tried to betray him, but once Pharaoh found out, once he took the time to investigate, he realized that it was the chief baker and not the cupbearer. Joseph interprets these dreams, but he begs the cupbearer to remember him. He says, please remember me. I'm not in here because I deserve this. In fact, it's the exact opposite. I don't deserve what I'm facing, but the cupbearer forgets him. He doesn't say anything about what Joseph did for him. He forgets it like that, and Joseph wallows in prison for two years. We left last week on a pretty down note, and kind of at the bottom of Joseph's story. This is the lowest he ever gets. The only chance he has is just the seed of an idea, the seed of a plea for this cupbearer to remember him. And then this happens two years later. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh has a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up, he fell asleep again, and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. 
The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them. Now, this story actually has echoes that play out later on in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of Babylon, has dreams that none of his court can explain. We read in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar's mind was troubled, just like Pharaoh's mind was troubled. We see that he can't sleep, and so he summons magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed, just like this Pharaoh does, but they can't interpret it. And they say, no one on earth is able to do what the king wants. This is impossible. No one can interpret this dream. It's too mysterious. That is, until Daniel shows up and interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. This story is also echoed in the story of Moses. The magicians of a later pharaoh are able to mimic some of the plagues of Egypt, but eventually they just see the power of God and what he is able to do through these plagues in Egypt, and they aren't able to copy God's power. So what we're being shown throughout the Old Testament over and over again is that no pagan god and no magician representing that pagan god can match the power of God. No pagan can match the power of one who is filled with the spirit of God. The inability to interpret these dreams shows that these, these men of the court aren't able to provide to Pharaoh what he wants. Now, when the Pharaoh mentions this to his court, there's actually one person high up in the Egyptian government who remembers something about this event. The chief cupbearer says to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. This is a confession of failure. He says, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew is there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was impaled or executed. Now, it's interesting just to take a second to ask, okay, but why does the chief cupbearer finally remember Joseph? I mean, it's been years since Joseph interpreted the dream for him. So how, how has he suddenly recalled it out of nowhere? Well, if you think through this story, it has been two full years uh, since Pharaoh vindicated the cupbearer. And what's really interesting was it was revealed in chapter 40 that the cupbearer was vindicated on Pharaoh's birthday. Two more years had passed and two more birthdays came. So this was a kind of anniversary, not only of Pharaoh realizing who had betrayed him, but the cupbearer being forgiven. This is the anniversary of the day he was let out of prison and restored back to his position. There's also a lot of coincidences that are just too coincidental. The Pharaoh has two dreams, just like each of the prisoners had two, had two dreams, at least total together. The Pharaoh's mind is troubled, just like the two officials were so sad in the prison. The magicians can't interpret Pharaoh's two dreams, just like the officials couldn't interpret their own dreams. In other words, so many details have come together at the perfect time and perfect place for the cupbearer to overhear what happens and then everything 
clicks in his head. He realizes, oh my goodness, I know someone who can interpret this dream because he interpreted my dream. There is one guy who can do this, and he got the interpretation exactly right. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and he is quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, this is important. We talked about how when Joseph changes his clothes, something important is about to happen. He came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And I love what Joseph says in verse 16. I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So I love that Joseph says, look, look, people, human beings, men and women, by our own power, cannot interpret dreams given to people by God. The Egyptian magicians can't do it. The Babylonian magicians can't do it. Even Joseph says, I can't do it. But the one who can will. And he will interpret it through Joseph. Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of yours are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There's going to be seven years of a great abundance that are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Now, with the two dreams of the officials, the cupbearer and the baker, God gave two individual dreams, but it actually showed two forms of the same act of God. God delivered justice to the situation through Pharaoh, and that was applied to the cupbearer by vindicating him and restoring him to his position. It was also justice for the baker who had uh, offended Pharaoh and is justly punished through execution. So God shows two dreams in two forms to show one reality applied in two different ways, and now that's happening to Pharaoh. Apparently, Joseph says this is perhaps a form of justice or judgment against Egypt. Now, it, the text never says directly that God is punishing Egypt with this famine, but there's definitely a lopsidedness to this event. The seven years of abundance are going to be forgotten. They're going to be forgotten like Joseph down in the dungeon. They're going to be ignored. They're going to be some hazy, distant memory because the famine, the seven years of famine are going to be so big, so loom, so large in their minds that no one will even recall or mention those years of abundance. And the reason why it was shown twice is just to affirm to the same man over and over that this matter has been decided. It is going to happen. There's no way to pray your way out of this one. The only thing you can do is prepare. And here's the thing, it's coming soon, so it's urgent. Now, here's the thing we have to remember. Joseph, technically right now, has been remembered 
but he could go right back to being a prisoner in the dungeon. He could be sent back after he interprets this dream. Pharaoh could say, look, thanks for all the help. I will see you later. He has no standing right now. He has not been vindicated. And Joseph could want for all of Egypt to pay for what they've done to him. And why not? Why wouldn't he be bitter? He could help Egypt, but he could say, this is exactly what you people deserve for what you've done to me. He could walk back to the dungeon in smug self-satisfaction. But that's not what he does. Joseph is wise and good. After all these years, 13 years of suffering, he decides to do this. Let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. This shows the character arc of Joseph coming to fruition. Remember, it's not from sinner to saint. It's not from evil to good. It is naive to wise, short-sighted to far-sighted. He says, Pharaoh, you should look for a wise man. What he does right here is so genius. He says, look, if you can find any wise man in this room, I mean, obviously not those wise men and magicians who uh, couldn't interpret your gene. Just someone in this room, if you just look around and you look for a wise man, maybe you should pick me, is the obvious implication of that. What he's trying to say is, none of these guys are qualified, none of these guys are competent. I was the only one who was able to do what you needed. Joseph has become wise. In his father's house, Joseph interpreted his dreams to his brothers, the very men that he said he would supplant and would bow down to him. But now he's interpreting dreams and following them with a plan of action in order to rise to power and be vindicated, but without threatening Pharaoh himself. Look, he says, store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh, under the authority of you. He doesn't uh, act like he's going to supplant Pharaoh or be in charge instead of Pharaoh. He's wise. He's giving this plan of action, showing exactly what he's competent to do without threatening the Egyptian king. In Potiphar's house, Joseph knew that this wife of Potiphar's was trying to tempt him and seduce him, and he foolishly places himself under her power by going into Potiphar's house without any witnesses around. Again, he's naive. But in Pharaoh's house now, Joseph wisely contrasts himself with these other servants. He says, they don't know what they're doing, but look for a wise man who does. In other words, God has been preparing him for this moment, and he wisely steps up to the plate and navigates all the difficult tensions in this story. And what's beautiful is, Joseph's life has been constant ups and downs, right? He's been, he's been in good times and bad times, prosperity and poverty, and that's what Egypt is about to go through. They're about to go through seven years of prosperity and then seven years of poverty. They're about to go through good times and then bad, a huge up and a catastrophic 
down. And God has been preparing Joseph for this moment with his ups and downs. He knows what it's like to play the long game, to save during a time of prosperity so that you can get through poverty. And this Pharaoh notices everything he's doing and he doesn't punish him for it. He says, that plan seems really good to me. Can we even find anyone like this man? one in whom is the Spirit of God, which is a rebuke to all those other servants who uh, is not like Joseph. Pharaoh says to him, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. And he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. In the past, we've taken note any time Joseph's clothes change. He receives an ornate robe from his father, but he was stripped of that robe by his brother, dipped in blood, and then that was used in order to deceive his father. He receives a servant's cloak from Potiphar, which was ripped off of him by Potiphar's wife, and then used to deceive Potiphar. As the prison warden's servant, he changed clothes in order to go see Pharaoh, and we think, what if he is stripped again of this clothing, but he isn't. He is elevated to second in command with a ring, with linen, and a gold chain, and he never loses these clothes. After his first fall, when Joseph is sold into slavery, we can picture Joseph in a caravan as a naked slave with the Ishmaelites. But now he is put in a chariot and he is paraded around all of Egypt and Egyptians are told to make way before him. This might make us rethink Paul's imagery of being clothed with Christ. I don't know if that has ever sounded strange to you, but Paul says in baptism, we are clothed with Jesus. Now think about all the times in scripture where someone is naked and ashamed. Adam and Eve are an obvious example of this. When they sin. They cover themselves because they're naked and ashamed. And all of us are naked and ashamed by our sin. But Christ is our clothing. He gives us honor and dignity and grace, and he covers over our sin and shame. There's an interesting parallel here with the father in the story of the prodigal son. Because when the prodigal son returns, after wasting away all of his inheritance, the father says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Our heavenly father clothes us when we return to him. Even though we're naked and ashamed by our sin, our father covers up our nakedness. And no one can take away the clothing of Christ. Now, at the end of this chapter, there's a bit of a warning sign of things to come. We're told that Pharaoh says to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name 
Zaphonath, Paneah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of Om, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of Om. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and, it, and said, It is because God has made me fruitful Excuse me, in the land of my suffering. Now, right as Joseph is ascending to power and becoming second in command of Egypt, he receives an Egyptian name, he receives an Egyptian wife, and he has two sons while in Egypt. And there's kind of a question being formed here. Is he getting too close to Egypt? The question isn't answered, but it's something to be watching out for in the coming um, classes. But I think it's important to focus more on his two sons. One of them is named Manasseh in honor of Joseph forgetting his trouble, and one is named Ephraim uh, because God has made Joseph fruitful. Now, it is true that God has made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. There is no doubt about that. But even if Joseph has forgotten the trouble with his father's house, that's not going to last very long because in the next chapter, we read that when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his 11 sons, why do you keep looking at each other? There is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us. So right as Joseph is kind of moving on, he's, be, he's ascended to power in Egypt, he's got Egyptian clothes, he's got an Egyptian name, he's got an Egyptian wife, he's got sons through that Egyptian wife. Now, his other family, his family of origin, is coming down to visit him. But instead of ending on that ominous note, I want to end on a different one. Jacob, excuse me, Joseph comes into his own as one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament whose life resembles Christ ahead of time. Think about all of the connection, connections between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph has 11 brothers who betray him, one of whom is named Judah, who sells him for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus has 12 disciples whom he calls brothers who betray him, and the main betrayer is named Judas, who sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph has dreams that his brothers will bow down before him, and Jesus has his brothers bow down before him in worship. Joseph enters into the ministry of Pharaoh at 30 years old. Jesus enters into the ministry of God at 30 years old. Joseph is put into prison by Potiphar on the basis of a false allegation, and Jesus is crucified by Pilate on the basis of a false allegation. Pharaoh tells the Egyptians during the famine, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When Jesus went to the wedding in Cana, his mother told the wedding guests when they ran out of wine, go to Jesus and do whatever he tells you. Joseph opens up all the storehouses of grain and gives bread to Egypt and all of the world. Jesus gives the bread of life to all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. But here's the big question. Other than that just being interesting, other than that just showing uh, connections, literary connections between the Old Testament and New Testament, why does that matter? I think that that matters because Joseph's story is not just about Joseph. 
It's not limited to him. You might read this story and think, wow, great. God is great for him, but how is God great for me? But what this story shows is that God is the providential Lord of the universe who cares about every single detail, and he loves to arrange things for perfect timing. God is the one who gives us food to eat during a famine, whether that's a famine during the time of Joseph or a spiritual famine in which people are hungry for the word of God. God is the one who vindicates the innocent, who are falsely convicted of crimes they don't commit and are unjustly punished, whether that's Joseph in Egypt or Jesus on the cross or martyrs who have died in the name of Christ. God is the one who cares about all nations. He always cared about all nations, not just in the New Testament, but already in the first book of the Bible. God wants to bless the world through one nation, the descendants of Abraham, and he's already doing it through Joseph at the end of Genesis. This story is about God. It's not just about Joseph. And the same God of Joseph is alive and well today. Now, I like the connections between Joseph and Jesus because they show us that Jesus can be seen in many characters in the Old Testament, even when the New Testament, New Testament doesn't directly mention it. Christ is a new Abraham. He's the father of many nations. Christ is a new Aaron, who's the great high priest for all of us. Christ is a new Job, who suffers greatly but never curses God. Christ is a new Boaz, who is a faithful kinsman redeemer. You can do this on and on and on. You can see that this list of connections is infinite and shows just how much Jesus didn't delete the Old Testament. He doesn't get rid of the Old Testament. He doesn't climb up the ladder of the Old Testament and kick it away. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's not just where the story was always headed. He is the greater and new version of every single good and great character of the Old Testament. He is what the Old Testament has always been about. He shows us that he is not just a new Joseph or a new Abraham. He's greater than that. He's not just one in a long line or one in a long series. He's the fulfillment, the encapsulation of that entire story. But here's the question. If Joseph and Jesus have so much in common, why doesn't Jesus come from the line of Joseph? We know that two half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, come from Joseph. But why? Why doesn't Jesus come from them? Why, why does he come from Judah? We already saw in a previous chapter how unrighteous Judah is. Of all the people who are worthy recipients of Christ, the Messiah, we wouldn't think it's Judah. Based on what we know so far, why wouldn't Jesus come from the line of Joseph? And that's a question we'll be able to answer in the next few chapters.